This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, welcome. This is another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year, the podcast, which you've yes. just downloaded. And thank you for uh, for bearing with us. And uh, we're all doughy-eyed and very nostalgic because we are actually back in the Books of the Year studio. Yes, isn't this fun? We're no longer reliant on my Wi-Fi, which, let's be honest, for the last two or three years has been a little bitty, a little in and out. You've certainly had plenty of time to get it sorted. Yes, I have. Funny and, how you have No, funny how that's worked. Uh, but what a joy it is to be back in this studio since we've not been in here since the before times. It does seem like another era, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. Because so, yeah. so much has changed. Anyway, yeah. but we're here, we're in the studio... Uh, an email from Steve in Grantham. By the way, Marina Hyde is, uh, is our special guest on the pod today. You'll hear all about her new uh, book very shortly. Steve in Grantham. Uh, Simon and Matt, I listened to the brilliant Anthony Horowitz on your podcast recently. Always entertaining and insightful. That's going back quite a long... Is it? Well, is is it? it? Probably, yeah, yeah, a few, a few months. A few months? Spoke, yeah, yeah. He loved coming into the studio. So then <laughs> next time he'll, lo- he'll love to come Absolutely. back. Absolutely. I enjoyed hearing about him writing himself as a character in his Hawthorne book series, which I must admit I haven't got to yet. It reminded me of a book I read earlier this year by Joseph Knox called True Crime yeah. Story. Do you know it? Joseph puts himself in the book and, like the Anthony character, is a bit thick and a bit unlikable. It's a good read if you haven't got to it. Maybe we'll be seeing radio broadcaster turned detective Simon Mayo appear in a crime thriller soon. On that last point, Steve, absolutely no chance at all. Um, <laughs> You're right, Joseph Knox does do it fantastically well. Joseph Knox has the same editor as me. Yeah. Um, and Bill, the editor, uh, gave me a, a copy, and it is, it's it's an extraordinary book. It is, yeah. And you're not really quite... Uh, you're not quite sure where you are. 
with I, it, but he pulls it off. I, I think he does. I you recommended that one to me, and I I I'll admit the first sort of dozen or so pages I was struggling because there are quite a few people to 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 recognise. But once you if you give it half an hour, is what I'm saying, then it really really draws you in. It's very very good. I can still remember so much about that book. It's very good and particularly well edited. Would you say? I would have said Bill did a fabulous yes. job there with the editing. Well done, Bill. Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, true. Steve, thanks very much. Our email, by the way, is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. That you, hasn't changed. No, you can tweet us as well at Books of the Year. But if, you, if you'd like to email stuff about programmes that we've done, books that we've read and told you about, or books that you are reading that you think we ought to be interested in, booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. I think that's basically it. Yeah, I love the fact that we're still on Yahoo, even though the rest of the world has moved on. I, I like that we're, we're like vinyl. I think Yahoo will come back. All the kids will be using Yahoo soon. Well, and everything is written with a fountain pen. It is as well. Yes. We have an inkwell here in in, the, in our studio. It's the only studio with an inkwell. Correct. And a yeah. quill. Yeah. Anyway, uh, email us in time for our, our next show. That would be great. Anyway, on with uh, the episode today. Welcoming journalist and incredible Guardian columnist Marina Hyde to the studio. And Marina's book is What Just Happened? Is that how you say it? I really? think so, yes. What Just Happened? What Just Happened? As though you have no idea what's just happened. Dispatches from the Turbulent Times, or the Turbulent Guardian in this case. How are you, Marina? It's very nice to see I'm you. I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, introduce us... To, so this is a book of your columns. So uh, for those who don't read your columns regularly, what is your, what is your brief on a weekly basis? Well, I, I mean, I just write about the news, really. Um, and so that can be anything from... I tend to write at least once a week about politics, but I also have written sports columns, celebrity columns, uh, just sort of general news columns, all sorts of things. But I'm really... My job is to write opinion about them, um, to sweep in at the end with some whimsy and jokes, ideally, on a good day. Um, and so um, this book covers six years... Um, and I had to start it somewhere, and I sort of chose it just before just before the Brexit referendum. Um, and when a lot, I think a lot of people on whichever side of that you voted do, do can see now that our politics sort of left the tracks there a bit, and it's not really ever got back onto the tracks. Um, we just have had sort of six years of chaos. Um, and so this book chronicles that time. I would have loved to have come on your podcast and be able to say, how wonderful to be able to look back on that time yeah. of kind of complete chaos from this position of sublime calm. But we are still in the chaos, it seems, very much so, more, perhaps more than ever. We're, spe we're speaking on uh, on a Monday morning. Johnson has just said he's not going to stand. It looks as though Sunak is going to be Prime Minister, though, who knows, you know, by the time the podcast lands, some, <laughs> Penny Morden might be might be prime minister. But but as someone therefore who who watches this, just before we get into the, the columns, because it's all one morass of a story, <laughs> uh, which is still sort of still travelling. If it, it's felt this weekend as though there's been an acknowledgement from all sides of the debate that actually this is a Brexit conversation. The whole thing that we're talking about now, this Tory leadership, is still a Brexit conversation, and until. The Brexit side of things is addressed. We're not really addressing what the issue is. It's interesting. I think it's quite easy for people to say that everything, that the Brexit referendum is the cause of all this. But I actually think you have to think that something caused the Brexit result and that there were problems baked into um, 
the way our society is structured, um, our economy, lots of things before. And there's a reason why lots of people voted out. Um, and whether or not they were made false promises or whether or not they um, knew clearly what, in many different cases, they were voting for different things, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think there are structural issues that, and it's been quite clear, it's become quite clear over the last few years and actually particularly even over the last few weeks that there are structural issues that we a huge amount of the country doesn't work everybody knows this you can see this whether you try to take a train whether you try to take a bus whether you try to do all sorts of things you think how am I living in one of the world's largest economies and I really honestly can't book a train ticket or you know these things are sort of there are many many problems in the public realm and lots of things are falling apart that shouldn't be I think maybe it goes back I always think lots of things much more goes back to the 2008 financial crisis, which was the most significant event of that decade, although it seemed at the mm. time to people that the most significant event was 9-11. But I think the things that have happened both in here, both here and in America, um, so much has flowed from the financial crisis and the failure to deal with it, the failure to hold anyone particularly responsible for it, um, the way in which we got out of it economically, all of so much goes back to that. So I... Whilst the Brexit point is important and clearly Brexit is the type of Brexit we have um, with the economy we have and with the things that people are actually willing to settle for socially and willing to vote for is a problem. And it's not settled. It's not done, as it were. Never mind the Northern Ireland situation, which is clearly not done. Um, But lots of things are not settled. Um, It's a very long answer to that. (laughs) It is. is. (laughs) Really sorry. I don't know what happened there. And none of that is. Well, some of that is in the book. But anyway... You say uh, in your kind of introduction to the book that a book of columns worries me. Well, Why yeah. do you say that? I tell you what, because I tell you what, the newspaper and newspapers rightly used to sort of self-destruct almost, with, you know, within 24 hours. They were literally wrapping around fish and chips or whatever. And now, because we have the internet, these things sort of live on forever, whereas I think really a newspaper column in some ways should be a kind of evanescent thing. But yes, I have done a book, Simon. So um, I... But why I, does it worry you? I suppose... Well, no, I I was actually quite pleased going back and trying to find the columns that I was going to put in the book that, uh, first of all, I don't like to make too many predictions because I don't really think it's the job of journalists to foretell the future. They should talk about what has just happened and uh, in, gen- in general sort of a- analyse things that have happened rather than what they might think is going to happen. Um, but I was quite pleased they sort of held up because in a lot of ways, you know, you could... You could have called, I could have called lots of things wrong. I have to say, I didn't think I called millions of things wrong. Um, although some of my columns, I look back from 2016 and think, oh my God, you sound so histrionic, you know, sort of Remainer who couldn't handle it after the result or whatever it is. Um, but that, in a way, that's part of like, it's my record. It's not a sort of historical record. It's my record of a moment in time and what it felt like to live through and cover those years. I mean, I do feel that covering politics for the last six years has been like being chained to a lunatic and you wake up every morning and you think, what will the lunatic do today? Where will the <laughs> lunatic take us today? And, you know, we're still in that. We're still we're still chained to it. At, at the heart of your book, Marina, is this that, that famous quote of may you live in interesting times. Yum. And I think we are all heartily sick it's of living in... Is- I'm, so last week, 
me and my wife were watching every day Politics Live. That's not normal. Not, normal, not normal to be sitting and watching Politics Live every lunchtime. That's ridiculous. It should, people should not have to. It's, people should be able to leave the news, come back to it in a couple of weeks and think it was all much the same as they'd left it. That's what used to be able to happen. Instead, we've all had to be hooked to this, I mean, really like a reality TV show. It's, it seems to me, I used to write about much more about celebrity and I wrote a lot about reality TV and it seems to me that politics has become so much more like reality TV. It's not a coincidence that the biggest reality star of that uh, era, Donald Trump, found his way into the White House solely because of having been on reality television. He couldn't have done it. He was all over by the early 90s, Trump, um, as a sort of you know businessman. But because he reinvigorated himself via The Apprentice and via that format, he became someone who... And I think that so much of our politics has felt like reality TV. So I, I remember when we, when we started this podcast back in 2018, obviously when people listen to the podcast, it's not always when it drops. It, sometimes it's months, yeah. sometimes years later. And I remember us saying in 2018... Can someone who listens to this in the future email us and tell us that everything is now okay? <laughs> and we have people emailing us from 2020 saying, you have no idea. Well, you have is... no idea. Does it feel like it's accelerating? Because yes, it certainly it does. feels like it does. I remember when I started, I really feel I found my voice in the sort of politics columns um, just around about the time of the referendum. And... I remember I wrote kind of quite solidly about politics for three months after because we were stuck in the turmoil, the various turmoils. And I remember someone saying to me who worked at The Guardian, you know, what will you write about in a year when it's all over? Yeah. And I remember thinking, I don't actually think it will all be over in a year. <laughs> but even I, in my worst imaginings, did not think we'd be sitting here six years later, nearly six and a half years later, with so many, you know, with with so much undone and, it, it, again, in the midst of such a lot of chaos and craziness. What does finding your voice mean? I suppose it's such a sort of wanky way of saying, isn't it, that you just, <laughs> way of writing a column that means that you don't, not everything you turn in you hate. I, I still actually don't like most things I write, but it, it just, I found the way I wanted to write about it, um, politics in a way, and I, I do think that people often really don't like politics and I quite understand why. And inst I do like writing about it. I make a lot of analogies, a lot of references in my columns um, to things like, I don't know, football or pop music or movies. And I think people do actually like those things. So I found it was quite a helpful way to talk about politics, to make analogies rather than with some kind of quite dry or obscure thing that the Liberal Party had done in 1983 in a, background, a back room, which is what kind of quite a lot of columns can do. Um, I tried to... Um, do it, filter it via the prism of things people did actually like. And so to me, and anyway, I'm always going to think it's more like a Taylor Swift song or a particular cricket game I've watched than I am going to think of the sort of, you know, rather more highfalutin comparison. Uh, just on the subject of movies, you um, you you have in your book my, f my favourite quote oh. from any movie ever. And I put it in... Um, uh, in a novel a couple of years ago because it just seemed to work and I didn't check that I could use it. So did you check that you could use it? We did check. They did check. And okay. so there's well, something the that had to come out. So it's actually it's actually a column about the very strange Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. Um, which, so we're, it's, off the, it's off the political yeah. track, really. Uh, but you say, think, Stan, each of the several times Peterson intoned life is suffering, all I could think about was how very much hotter it was in The Princess Bride. <laughs> when Wesley goes to Robin Wright, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And they say, you know, and they say, you'll take that line off Wesley all day long, but not of Jordan Peterson. No. But it's so, it's, I, I just wanted Such to mention it just because I love, 
I love the line so much. And it's sort of thrown away in the movie, but it actually seems applicable so often. There's so much. Well, yes, I think that is true. I mean, but of course, Wesley turns out to be rather more optimistic than that. But it's at yes. the, he, he's the dread pirate, Robert. Yeah, so, he's, you know. he's a. That's a sort of pose, isn't it? That sort of angsty line. I mean, I am in general more optimistic than I may seem from some of my columns. It's just, it's just been the raw material that I had to work with over the past. You know, I do believe in the. I really believe in the potential of, of for politics to help people and to increase tolerance and prosperity, which seem to me like the sort of two lodestars that you should be working towards. Um, and I believe I have to believe in politics to make the power of politics to make people's lives better. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of it over the last few years, but I do still believe in it. You mentioned, uh, Marina, how you uh, very early on were writing about, well, Lost in Showbiz column, of course, for The Guardian and in sport. And, and the, your sport columns were the first of yours that, that I really started devouring. I would argue that probably the best reporter to cover Donald Trump was Maggie Haberman at the New York Times. Yeah. Maggie Haberman started as basically doing the... Her beat was the red carpet beat in New York, and surprise, surprise, she would encounter Donald Trump a lot. She knew Donald Trump way better than any of the political correspondents were doing, and her background was not politics. And I wonder whether... Given that your background was sport, was was showbiz before you started um, a, sort of really concentrating on the politics, whether those two areas really helped yeah. in being able to talk about absolutely. It. That's such a good point, and it's definitely true. And it's like, like a lot of these things in life; it doesn't make sense till afterwards. But it definitely made sense to me, and I actually think that. Over the past few years, as I say, politics has become much more like something like reality television. It became a form of, you know, people were genuinely watching the Parliament channel in the evening and people were trying to, you know, just this endless... It was the, when Theresa May was trying to get her Brexit deal through, it was like trying to give birth to something bigger than your own body. It was sort of it, kind of technically impossible. And yet you kept watching to see if somehow this logjam would be broken. Yes, I think that writing, a, that seeing, it, 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 that covering sport and covering celebrity, both of which I did in a slightly outsidery way and to some extent. I could never really... When I, I realised when I started writing about sport that it was not all everyone, by the way, who writes about sport is like this, and I had some great friends who write about sport, but there were some who were quite exclusionary, exclusionary and I, as, as a, you know, there were vanishingly few women doing anything to do with it at that time. It's much better now. And... I've always felt like, oh, I can't be in this club, so I'll just do my own thing. And I worked out my own way of writing about it like that. Um, celebrity, we didn't really cover celebrity in The Guardian. So when we started doing it, I thought, well, I have to find a way to do it um, that is fun here and what works for this audience. So again, it was a slightly different way of doing it. And actually, in a way, I hung on for a long time to try and trying to write sort of conventional politics columns. And I remember, you know, quite often there's a lot of people now who are pretty nice about me, but I remember seeing them like sneering about me online. And I remember thinking, actually, I'm just going to stop playing this game. I can't win. Um, and these kind of old guys in a lot of <laughs> ways who just think, you know, you, you, you shouldn't really be writing about politics. You're not part of the club as it were um and i think actually again being on the outside of it works well and i would always recommend people just but it's so easy when you're trying to do the right thing to try and copy others or to try and fit in with the way mm. they cover these things and actually in all of those on all of all of my success really has come when i've either been forced to give it up because i simply can't do it or just been excluded in some way from a sort of group 
and thought, well, I'll do it my own way then. I have one problem with your book. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm amazed it's only one, but carry on. One broad kind of philosophical uh, problem, and and it's this. When um, Benedict Cumberbatch starred as Dominic Cummings on television... Uh, going through the Brexit debate. I couldn't bear to watch. When Ken Branagh did doubtless a very good impression and performance uh, as Boris Johnson for a drama on television, I couldn't, I just couldn't bear to watch. And some of these columns, it's like, you remember the worst nights of your life? Well, this is what Marina thought. You know what I mean? It's like, I love reading your columns at the time, but going back brought all the pain. Yeah, I know. It's back. funny. I mean, in another way, someone else said to me, which made me laugh, saying, said, oh, it's quite like, um, it's it's it sort of makes it worse when you know what's going to happen. Because when you go, at the time, exactly. we didn't know yeah. how the story was going to play out. But when we know, you know, you know that the Conservative Party, having said, on under absolutely no circumstances will we ever elect Boris Johnson. Let me tell you, let me tell you. And then after a while, they begin sort of circling. You can see they've got, they're running out of other ideas and they're like, well, maybe. Like, no, no, turn back. There's still chance. But you know how it ends. It's, it's almost a bit like a sort of Greek tragedy where someone tells you, the prologue tells you absolutely everything that's about to happen. So then you're watching it and you're thinking, oh man, no, you're, I know you're going to make a terrible mistake here. I there, There's a lot of that to it, um, isn't there, that you can see... When you're when it's all set out, the, obviously there's things other than politics in this. But, but in the chapters that set out the politics story, and you know it just runs consecutive, consecutively, you do see where the mistakes are made, and you think, oh wow, this turns out to be a massive mistake of Theresa May's or whoever it is. Mm. Um, so yeah, there is that. I mean, I suppose you have to just. I, I there was a lot that I had buried and put in a sort of memory hole, and I yeah, it's a lot I that we've all buried remember. over the last few years. And you're just <laughs> just for mental you're, sanity. You're yeah. poking. Okay, so you you said that you're an optimist, and most of the people that you write about are villains. But are there heroes when you when you've gone back and you've looked at your columns and you've selected what's going to go in the book, and you just look at things more broadly? Are, are there heroes? Are there people who you think have actually emerged from this swamp? With some kind of credit. Well, yes, that's a, it's a very good point. I do think um, in, this isn't really an answer to it, but in lots of ways you could see that each prime minister was worse than the last, which was one of those awful things that you thought no one could be worse than, I don't know, maybe David Cameron, as in given that he... I'm not saying that... He's a titan. He was... John well, Major. But then after, <laughs> after Theresa May, you're thinking all these, you know, oh dear, then it goes so wrong for her. And then you're thinking nobody could be as bad. And then you're thinking, oh, Johnson, it keeps going. And obviously trust. Um, but actually, what I have to say is that the, the places I feel most optimism for at the moment are outside politics. I think all the big ideas, what worries me about politics is I don't, I'm not hearing any big ideas in politics. You just don't hear of them anymore. Actually, having said that, what Liz Truss tried to do was, I suppose, a big idea. It was just a really bad one that didn't work. Um or one that could have been good, but in other circumstances. But she she really tried to do a big idea. But otherwise, you don't hear of these things. There's a sort of, you know, the dream now is of managerialism and competence, but nothing much more than that. And when you look at places like, I don't know, aid or um, the voluntary sector where enormous logistical challenges are being overcome and there are really radical ideas for how to get money to people, how to raise up whole, you know, demographics in different countries via, you know, giving cash direct to people. All these kind of big, much bigger ideas are all happening outside of politics. So the people who I think ended up being quite sort of heroes, you know, the idea that Marcus Rashford beat the government twice during the... How is that possible when he... It's not even his day job. You look at someone like Martin Lewis now doing the work of about four 
government departments who will not tell people how to save money because they don't want a nanny. Well, people are quite, people quite want to hear from one. I think that. I think that's symptomatic of something bigger, which is there aren't big ideas in politics. People feel that all politicians, wrongly or rightly, the, the, the various sort of little democratic crises and scandals that we've had on a sort of rolling basis over the last six years have made a lot of people turn away from Maybe the good people parties. aren't going into politics. Yeah, then. Maybe people they're... aren't going. I, but I think people will come through who are not involved in the party system. I think you'll see more of that. I, I think, think people are, you know, trying to find someone, someone they can believe in, and they're not seeing it necessarily within the two-party system. With your, with the, the, the way that the uh, book is grouped, the columns aren't put there in um, chronological order. They're, they're there by theme, and and it's great. Um, well, they are by in Well, the, oh, the, the politics the is there. Politics is in chronological uh-huh, order, uh-huh. but the other themes are things like sports and exactly. celebrity, just to break it up. Okay, so. The one I want to talk to you about is the one that I uh, knew that I was going to leaf to first. And uh, I remember when I read it, and I remember um, how visceral, how I felt when I was reading it, and it was because it was a really very difficult column to read. And it's the one where you talk about you being um, verbally assaulted by a guy on the road as you're going to pick your son. One of, one of my children. Yes, a man followed me. It was it, it was strange. It was the week where it was emerging what had happened to Sarah Everard, who was the um, young woman who was abducted and murdered by a serving metropolitan police officer. And I and it, it, it I was walking to collect one of my children in the mid afternoon um, from school and. I was sort of followed down a couple of streets by a guy just shouting at me. And, you know, I mean, all women have had that. He wasn't my first that year and he certainly wasn't my last. And in a way, I remember thinking at the time, God, it's just such a coincidence that it's happening. And then I thought, but it's not really because it's happening to people all over the UK all the time. And I ended up writing it really, you know, incredibly quickly. All the ones who write quickly are the, probably the best ones. But um, just the story, you know, just almost like a narrative of how it happened to me. Um, and as, as all women know, that everything slows down. And, of course, many of the things these sort of things have happened to you. Everything sort of slows down in that moment. You think, my God, am I ever going to get to the end of the street? How is it taking so long? And But you can remember every tiny little thing. And, every, you know, you're absolutely on a, you know, you're on a sort of, you're in a sort of terror reflex, really. Um, and so, yes, but it was that column. I mean, people... Generally, I think that humour is a very good way to make serious points, but I decided there's probably a couple of jokes even in that one, but I decided not to. No, I I think the most shocking thing to me was, and you you mention this in the column, you say that your editor had said, A, are you okay? And B, do you really want to talk about that? Your editor was a man. Mm. I'm reading it, obviously, as a man. And I am shocked, and I am feeling this is absolutely not on. Oh, oh, I hope she's okay. And yet, the point you've just made of this wasn't my first, it won't be my no. last. This happens. That's actually the shocking bit. Yes, it was a moment of real consciousness raising. Actually, that because a lot of men, I think, didn't, and many wrote to me. I mean, thousands of people wrote to me after that column, and people were telling me these awful stories of things that had happened to them, to their wives, forty years ago. I mean, really terrible things. And I tried to reply to every single one of them over many, many, many weeks. Um, but it was a real moment of consciousness raising because I think a lot of men didn't understand the extent, the, the frequency with which it happens, and because it is so frequent, it's very to, to, in very degrees um women don't necessarily talk about it and thought they knew um and so it was a very unique moment 
again, you feel like not where has the anger gone because it's still certainly there, but not a lot changes. So it's one of those things where <laughs> you have to hope that things we we come closer to to change on that front. But really, very little happened, and the, the Met did very little. <laughs> Yeah, many, many years ago, I think when I was on Five Live, I interviewed Thomas Friedman, the kind of legendary New York Times columnist who has this globe-trotting brief, writes very grandly and very interestingly about um, complex subjects. But he, he said in that interview he gets a very early sense whether he's hit the nail on the head or whether he... or. Maybe it's um, mixed metaphors, you know, maybe he's rattling the wrong cage or he that he senses online whether he's done a good job because the reaction is is immediate. Do you do you get that? Do you get a sense of when you're writing the right thing or whether you've written the wrong thing or, you know, if no one talks about it, do you do you take any notice of the kind of reaction? I try not to take any notice. I think you sort of have to treat the two imposters just the same and I try not to. Once I've written it, really, it's sort of... I'm not saying you write things in a sort of dream state, but once I've written it, it's out of me and that's it's up to, it's up to people how they take it. But I don't... I stand by all the things I've written. It's very rare that I come back and think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that because I am actually self-editing as I'm writing all the time and thinking, is that fair? Is this based on, you know, just... Is this second-hand source? Is this whatever? And I have to be... I am try to write carefully like that um, and I try to self-edit along the way and then afterwards I try not to take too much notice of the reaction. Has your editor ever said you can't say that? Occasionally, uh, legally, there's uh, there's always an argument and I will always argue to get things in. Um, if they ever complain on taste grounds, I become nuclear and are like, <laughs> no, it has to go in, even if I think maybe, maybe you are. Right. <laughs> I do take things out every now and then. I mean, you know, every column I take about two jokes out thinking that's just that's revolting and I can't put that. I have to take an axe to that one. If there's ever an after-hours version of my column with a password, <laughs> we can put them in. But, um, yes, I try and... Uh, no, I don't. I'm, that's why I, re I really value being um, at The Guardian and them not telling me what to write at all and not saying you can't say this. Um, I, I realise there's a weirdness about me reading out something that you've written, <laughs> Marina, but I just thought that I thought this was a very interesting point. Uh, you're talking about um, Prince Philip, but, yeah. but you go off on a particular uh, tangent. You say, people are more performative online in accordance with their consciousness of being watched. My colleague, Jonathan Friedland, who's been on this pod, uh, talking about his very interesting book recently, made me laugh recently when he noted how Twitter has turned everyone into the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Somehow feeling that every major news story requires them to issue an official statement. And I thought... That is so true. But you know, it's hilarious. People's, you know, if you, he bestrode the world like a colossus. It's like, don't worry, it's fine. It's fine for you. You know, it's quite Pooterish, really, isn't it? You know, I, I don't know. Your lots of your listeners will have read the um, Diary of a Nobody, but it's quite that. It's that need to sort of commentate on it. I mean, I know that's my job. I'm a newspaper columnist, so I can hardly criticise it. But it does make me laugh. The kind of very serious tone. Sometimes, you know, it's it's really fine not to have an opinion about all of these things as they pass by. You know, you yes. can't let things pass you without feeling you have to but it is true and you, if, if something terrible happens in a country a long a long way away you don't need to say thoughts and prayers with uh, the survivors of you I got... now feel that it's all I now feel increasingly that more and more what you're doing when you're on 
those platforms is you you work for the platform. I, I almost don't see the things that people are saying anymore. I literally just see them almost like in the matrix, like those green numbers and things. It's just information raining down. And you're working essentially for the platform. You're working for some guy in Silicon Valley. You may think you're advancing your activist cause or this or that. But actually, what, what it is and what we know from the people who work in those places and we know from their algorithms is that they want you to stay angry because when you're angry, you stay on the platform longer. And this is the only reason that people are Facebook is interested in driverless cars and things like that. Because, you know, in America where people spend a lot longer in their car this is time you can't be online okay so they just want people to be online all the time and the best way to keep people online is to get them angry so i increasingly feel a lot of these and i sometimes see these great online beefs and arguments playing out all day over twitter and i i really just feel that whatever subject they may nominally be arguing about in fact they are literally just working for some guy in silicon valley who is soon to be elon musk they work for elon musk they don't work for the labor party or whatever 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 they're arguing about i increasingly just feel they're arguing to enrich Elon Musk. And are there any topics, just looking back over, the, as you do, you go back over the... Are there any topics that you've avoided? Are there any topics Not that really, you've, that you've I've, thought... I mean, I've had this story that... <laughs> For the last, you know, I've had the, uh, that I've had this story, which is this political story, and I feel like we're still in it. Mm. We're still trapped in the ancient curse. <laughs> um, so I've I've just sort of stayed on that story, as it were. When it goes, I'll I shall when we return to the when we finally reach the sunlit uplands, I'll be looking <laughs> around, thinking, I mean, you know, maybe go back to the celebrities. It'd be nice. Well, let's hope that the sunlit uplands <laughs> and Marina Hyde's showbiz column is just around the corner because I can't take. <laughs> we're so exhausted, aren't we? We're we all so exhausted. We absolutely are. But fortunately, we'll all, always have that illumination of a Marina Hyde column uh, just around the corner. So will there be another book? Have you enjoyed this process? <laughs> well, we've had enough in the last week for another book. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I've really enjoyed it. I've loved meeting... I, I've loved being on a tour and meeting all the people... Who so many people who read the column, you know, like hundreds of different people every night. And I, it's so odd to imagine when you're writing them. I really don't imagine people reading them. I know that sounds mad, like, what are you talking about? Because obviously they do read them, otherwise you wouldn't have a job anymore. But it, just to meet people and to sort of laugh about it together. I've always really tried to be a sort of friend to the reader um, and to say, I, I see you. <laughs> I share your pain. I also watched what happened on the news yesterday and, you know, <laughs> come and let's be in a gang together. That's what I've always tried to do. So it's nice to actually physically yeah. meet him. Have you got the next column running in your head already? It, it's got to be tomorrow morning. There's no point at the moment. <laughs> no. I, just, I only get up in the morning and just do it that day. I've always done that anyway, but there really is no point in having anything prepared. <laughs> so I've got to tell you, no, make no predictions. That's very good. Uh, Marina Hyde's book is uh, What Just Happened, Dispatches from Turbulent Times. Uh, there'll be more with Marina because uh, we have our Q&A, which will come up as a companion podcast. But for the moment, Marina, thank you very much. Thank you so much, guys. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. 
and we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.